0: On Mother's Day, I promised that I would be preaching on uh, a message for the fathers, because namely, this is very significant and important because of the experiences I've had in my life. So today, I have a a message, hopefully, by the power of the Holy Spirit, for you fathers, or men in general. So hopefully, we all can uh, celebrate fatherhood, even though that oftentimes, fatherhood isn't celebrated in our culture very much. A lot of us men are oftentimes even cowered in our own chairs or in our own homes, and we're very passive. And uh, it's because of our own insecurities, but also because of what the culture um, denigrating or lessening man and the role of man in fatherhood. So today, I'm not going to apologize for lifting up fathers, because I believe that their most influential role in the family, and hopefully we'll see that today. Uh, Today, we're going to look at what a prodigal father is. We're going to be looking at, in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. But the the cool thing is, it is not about the prodigalness or the looseness or the abundant wastefulness of the son, the younger son's life. But it's actually the exorbitant, abundant, loosefulness of the father's love he has towards his son. So, we're going to look at what it means to be a father through this story... In Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Fathers are often judged by their responses to people, their decisions, and their ability to manage. They are expected to forfeit their lives in dangerous situations to keep others safe, to handle disgusting things like spiders, snakes, and the alike, to fight and protect, to provide and give discipline, which often makes them out to be the bad cop in a bad good cop situation. Fathers are given the bad rap in our culture, yet everyone wants to, wants to have what the fathers have. They want their positions, they want their salaries, they want their influence. I would argue, and several studies show, that the absence of the father in a family is the most detrimental to a family. In the majority of the cases, fathers, though valuable to give their life for women and children, are the first to be easily set aside in the life of their children in cases of divorce. Many, not all, but many are only seen as the means by which money flows, and yet the money doesn't afford them the right to their own kids. I'm not here to talk about the injustices of our current culture against fathers or the abuses of the past generation of fathers, but to focus on what a good father is, what he is like, how he ought to respond, how he uses his position to influence rightly. Maybe you don't have a good dad. Maybe you didn't understand him. Maybe you don't see yourself as a good father, or maybe you think you're a great father whose kids seem to have all the right things in order and are well-behaved. Today, I want to look at the Heavenly Father and see how he demonstrates for us the kind of father we ought to be. And in order to do that, we first have to look to the kind of children that we are to father. Imagine, if you will, two children. One seems to ignore everything you say. The other will do everything you say, but to it's their own displeasure. Often kind of like, all right. Right? Imagine one child sneaks out late at night to pursue their own pleasure, and another child who wakes up when you call, but from the wrong side of the bed. A child who plays in their life and another one who pays in obedience to gain a, their own life apart from you. One who seems to make poor decisions and the other who s- seems to make all the right, uh, the right ones and position themselves toward success. A child who lets things out while the other holds it all in. A child who is better at spending and the other who is better at saving. A child who easily makes friends and a child who isn't so good at relationships, a child who fights with their fists, and the other who fights with their wit. Imagine that both children engage in sibling rivalry, where one looks down at the other, and the other fights for value and worth. Both are different, but both have the same problem. Both respond differently, but both need the same problem. Remedy. Now, here's where we're going to look at the prodigal son, but before we get into this, in Luke chapter 15, you can turn there or I can just read it for you. You need to understand and frame the story in where Jesus, or the author Luke, frames this. The very first verse of chapter 15 says this Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were sitting near him, Jesus, to listen to him, Jesus. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them a parable. And Jesus goes into three parables. First, he the lost coin. Then he goes into the parable of uh, or the lost sheep. And then he goes into the parable of the lost coin. And here, the lost son, or the prodigal son. And then it's here we're going to spend the rest of our time. Look at me in verse 11. Look with me in verse 11. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out my best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came... You who devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead, and has begun to live, and was lost, and has been found. It's a great story, very familiar to all of us, but there are certain scenes. This is one act and four different scenes. The first scene is about the younger son then the father. Then the third scene is about the older son and then the father. And there's much that we can learn about fatherhood by looking at the behavior of the two sons and how the father responds. So let's look first to the two kids, the two sons. One is rebellious and the other is religious. One goes and asks basically for his dad to go die so that he can receive his inheritance – Being the younger son, he only gets one-third of the inheritance, and the other son, the older son, the first son, would get two-thirds. And so he says, Dad, I want my stuff. Now, give me my inheritance, which would have never happened until the patriarch passed away. So essentially, the rebellious son wants to go live his own life, wants to do things his own way. The other son, though, as we have already read, has done everything perfectly, everything you've ever commanded me. Everything that the father has said, he has done, and he's done it perfectly, it, so it appears. One gives himself over to loose living, while the other one gives himself to licentious living, meaning he earns his license so that he can do what he wants. He pays with his obedience in order to live his own life or get the things that he wants to accomplish, and the other one just loosely it all the way. This is the kid who spends, this is the kid who saves. One rejects the life that the father has offered him and has afforded him by leaving it. I no longer want to be part of all that he's provided. I want to go and make a new life for myself. While the other one rejects the father's way. He says, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this. But ultimately, as we've seen, the older son doesn't like how his father does things. And so he wants to usurp the father. One dashes away from the family and the other one is distant perfectly obedient in the fields but doesn't seem to have respect for his father one feels inferior and the other feels entitled in some of these behaviors we see that this is kind of a dysfunctional family some of these things we can even look in our own family our own immediate family or our cousins family or somebody else we can see that these elements are true and we have even probably experienced some of these elements. But there's three things I want to focus on real quick that we can point before we move on to the father, is that there is no concern in this story for the lost. Notice, if you go back and read the story about the lost sheep and the lost coin, there's always somebody who goes and looks. In this story, though, we don't have anybody who goes and looks for the lost son. We have a father who anticipates the waiting. But even the older brother who everything is to fall to, doesn't go and pursue his brother. Now we're reminded of Genesis in my, my brother's keeper. Absolutely. Accountability. If something is lost, if something of your father's is lost, is there a big brother who will go and find it and claim it for the father? Not here in this story. But who's telling the story? Jesus. A dysfunctional family, though, has no concern for the loss. Or the lostness of the family. The second point of dysfunctional families, they're not really family. A lot of times, and throughout scripture, we can see that there is this family of God, but they're dysfunctional. They actually do not like God the Father. They rebel over and over again. They pursue other fathers. They pursue other gods. They pursue their own life. They pursue a king rather than the true king. They're dysfunctional. That though they are, quote-unquote, family, they're not true family. You can still be in family, but not be part of it. Right? Just like Judas, a part of the disciples, but not really a disciple of Jesus. The nation of Israel, the family of God, the people of God, but have over and over again not acted or wanting to be the family of God. Jews and Pharisees, considered themselves to be the people of God, but despise Jesus himself because he was eating with sinners, as we just read those first few verses in chapter 15. That's dysfunctional family. They're stuck with the family they live in. So just because, and this is what we believe, just because you're invited in through baptism to be a part of the family of God, you still have to have a relationship with God in faith to be saved. That's the difference. A dysfunctional family, the family exists for me. It's what I get. It's when I eat. It's what I want. Both of these sons, it was all about them. It was never about the relationship with the father. Matter of fact, the story kind of has that same feeling that oftentimes our current culture has is, Dad's not really significant. I want to go live my own life. He means nothing to me and everything that I I get from this family, I want for myself. I want to go make my own life. The other one is, okay, I got to do what dad says. I have to do this again. I have to go out, do all my chores, because everything's going to fall to me, then I'll make things right. But no relationship, no respect for the father. However, we are given one specific instance of a clue in this story, Two different responses, or to say it in a different way, one responds and we don't know what happens to the other. The difference between these two sons, the rebellious and the religious, is that one comes to their senses and the other doesn't. It's very important that you don't pull this story out from where Jesus began to tell this story. He is sitting and eating with sinners and those who are religious who have done things according to the law, perfect, Have done, I, w- I would define the majority of people here have done really well for themselves. The first time when I came into Madison, one of the things that I had to grapple with with trying to plant the church is, how do you relate to people who, by all intents and purposes, has their life together? They're well-educated. They got really good grades. They haven't had major trauma in their life. They, have good, they come from good families. They've done everything. They're expected to go through high school. They're expected to play sports. They've been perfect to every practice. They go to college. They graduate. This is great. They have a great job. They have great houses, great yards, great everything in their life. They even show up to church. They're even a part of a church. They're a faithful member of the church. Do those people need the gospel? Do those people need a relationship with Jesus? Because everything is good. You should identify with the Pharisee and the older brother if you're that person. Now, if you're rebellious, like I've been in my life, ridiculously rebellious, having I I got the, I want to go do my own thing. Lavish, loose living, all those other things. You should identify with the younger child, the younger son, who says, You know what, Dad? I wish you dead, just so I can go live my own life. Both of them do that. However, one of them responds in a completely different way. He comes to his senses. And he comes to his senses after he's been brought low, after he has experienced the worst of the worst. Famine. He's been brought to his senses. And I would argue that that is a great analogy, what each and every one of us, both either rebellious or religious, have to be brought to an end of ourselves in order to see the glory and the goodness of our Father. We will never, will be blinded by our own abilities. We'll be blinded by our own experiences. We'll be blinded by so much more in our life that will prohibit us from seeing the goodness of God and actually tasting and seeing that he is the best. So now that we've kind of framed, I don't want to spend too much time on the sons because it's really not about the sons. It's actually all about the Father. Like I mentioned This is more about the prodigal father. So there's, this is a lot, but there's 14 things that I think we can learn and gain from this story about fatherhood. And so fathers, if you need to take notes, take notes, but make these moments, these things, these 14 things in your life, if you bring them to the forefront of your family, you bring them to the forefront of your life, you can demonstrate and display for those in your family, for those in your care, and to the rest of the world, What a good father looks like, what the heavenly father looks like. Number one, first and foremost, a good father is most concerned about the lostness of his family above all other things and commits himself to its remedy as his most urgent duty. Let me repeat that. First and foremost, a good father is most concerned about the lostness of his family above all other things and commits himself to the remedy as his most urgent duty. And what I mean by this is what we see in verses 1, 24, and 32. It was the lostness of his son. It was the relationship gap that he felt with each one of his sons that he was most concerned with. Not what they were doing, but how his relationship was with them. And this needs to be our biggest concern as fathers, more so than their education. Oh, Bruce, that's a big statement. Absolutely it is. More so than how successful they become in their life. Your first priority as a father, as a steward of a child that God has given you, is to first and foremost concern yourself with their lostness. That you have to get them to find joy and pleasure in God and see, so that they can see that he is good and it comes through you. God could do it for himself, but he chose to put you In place over those children. And you must be first and foremost committed to their lostness and to present them with a remedy by which they can be saved, and that is the gospel. If you're not spending daily time manifesting the gospel in your house, you are not being the best father you can be. You are not mimicking the heavenly father at all. You have to be giving the gospel to your children, to your spouse, 100% more than anything. And if that means you don't go to practice today because I haven't given you the gospel yet. If that means, hey, we got to forfeit some school activities because I need to get, they are first and foremost. Does anybody want to put up against the gospel sharing in the home with anything else in the life that we experience today? I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm just saying there is absolutely 100% more cost-effective, giving them the gospel than investing in any of the other time. I mean, I, I've even invested in some of my other kids' wrestling practice each and every day. It was quite a bit. And that we were exhausted coming home. I did not want to come home. I did not want to pick up my guitar. I didn't want to have to sing Jesus Loves Me that one time. I wanted to go to bed. I didn't want to open my Bible. As a matter of fact, I even skipped some practices because I'm like, that's, I don't even have time to do that. You're a father, you get to decide, I'm not in a position to tell other men how to run their families because that's their appointment God has given them. Just like you can't tell me how to run my family outside of the gospel, I'm not here to do that. I'm just helping give some principles, some things to think through. So first and foremost, a good father thinks about his lo- the lostness of his family above all other things and provides a remedy in the gospel and makes it his most urgent duty. Number two, a good father celebrates nothing more than those who repent as often as they repent and withholds nothing from those who repent. The difference that we see in the story is that one came to their senses and repented of their way and their life and everything that they were doing. We don't know what happens to the other one. And what did the father do? He didn't even acknowledge the fact that they had come Father, I have sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be your son. And he says, no, no, no. You are my son. And we're going to dance and sing right now. Every time your child does something wrong, you have to meet them with love and grace. And when they come to their senses and they repent, you need to celebrate it because everybody in heaven, including the heavenly father, celebrates a repentant heart. So, make repentance, not birthdays, more significant in your family every time it happens, so that your family has this atmosphere that understands that when somebody has done something wrong, you can repent, turn from it, and we will celebrate. Does anybody want to argue that that's not in here? You'd have a hard time. So, celebrate as often as they repent and withhold nothing from them when they repent. A little thing that's just coming to my mind right now is when they repent, make sure their siblings don't lord over them their wrongdoing. I know I can, I remember even my own life. I can see the life of my kids. It was like, you remember that one time you did that? Yeah, you did that. They're always trying to bring the other person down. But you cut it off, Dad. You said they repented. I remember it no more. It's as if it never happened because that's the how the Heavenly Father does it. So we don't hold accounts in our family. We don't do that. And we don't let others in the family lord over anybody. Nobody should judge if somebody has come to repent. Third, a good Father responds in love more than anger. I'll be confessional. Now, there's sometimes that my children have done something, and man, it just immediately gets my heart heart rate up, and I'm boiling. And I'm always saying things I regret later. I need to pray as a father that that the Holy Spirit would change that from anger into love and respond in love. How is it that you draw, how is it that the Heavenly Father draws all men to repentance? Through loving kindness, the Bible says. Draw all people to repent us from to loving from loving kindness. Loving kindness has to be your demeanor. Fourth, a good father entrusts himself to the heavenly father and anticipates his intervention. In verse twenty, we find that this father is anticipating, looking from afar. He sees his son coming, but what we we also see that the father lets his son go. I think in our culture, a lot of us would say like, no, you just don't let people go and ruin their lives. That's not loving. It seems to be, now I don't want to make a a, a direct parallel from a, a parable, but it seems to be that this father entrusts his son to the heavenly father to bring him ultimately to the end of himself through his own loving kindness cause him to repentance. I think a good mark of 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 a father is that he entrusts whatever happens in his family's life to God, that God is about saving, that God cares, that God is love and that is kind and that he is anticipating God's intervention in the situation rather than trying to control it himself. Fathers, we like to fix things. We like to manipulate things to force it to, to work, right? That was our mandate at the beginning. We were to, 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 to work the land, to till it, to make it, to cut out the thorns and th- thistles and make the ground produce fruit. But you do not treat people like that. You treat people the way the Heavenly Father treats them, draw them to repentance through loving kindness. You are not God. You're to point to God, and you must trust in him. And sometimes one of the hardest things you will have to do as a parent and as a father is to give them over to themselves, to let your children get good to themselves. This is in Romans chapter 1, when Paul says that God gave them over to their sin in order to deliver them from their sin. God is capable of doing that. So not only in that scary moment do you have to let them go and give them over to themselves in order to bring an end to themselves, but you have to anticipate God's intervention. You are not the Holy Spirit, but you can pray to the Heavenly Father to send the Holy Spirit to flood your child's life and to drastically change them. That's how you ought to be. It's not by the work of your hands. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit that the Father sends on behalf of the Son. A good father fights for his family to be unified. Here is where we see the father comes out to the older brother who's angry, who refuses to go into the party, which is drastically disrespectful. When a father of a territory throws a party and one of his sons doesn't show up, it's a disgrace to the family name. It's a visual display of dissension and division. And a father would not have had that during that time. He would have had no option but to come in. And many fathers would have coerced or forcibly said, go get my son, you're going to bring him in, he's going to sit down right here. But this father, this father goes to him and pleads with him. Again, something that in this culture no father would have done. And so people are listening to Jesus tell this story and they are blown away at the response of this father. Already in the story. But this father seeks to bring unity among his sons. Never division. We never allow those. A good father holds as truth that family is about relationship and less about work. A good father never communicates that there is something that you can do that will put you outside of the family once a child is never a servant. And we see that. That no matter what, And this has been my own experience. I remember one sad morning. um, My dad, uh, I guess it was late at night. My dad, um, who was not a Christian believer at this point, um, and I don't know if he still was, and he's passed away three, three years ago. He was married before, had a daughter. She called, she was in college. She was pregnant, she wasn't married. And I remember my father disowning her on that phone call. And that spoke, I think, a lot of things to our family. That there is something that you can do, something you can commit, that makes you stop being a grimmet. There's something I can do that that makes me homeless, fatherless. Somehow, I believe when uh, God changed my dad's heart because when I did worse things and ended myself up in jail, share, I share the same name as my dad. He was Larry Bruce Grimmett Sr. I was Larry Bruce Grimmett Jr. And when my name was plastered all over the newspapers, I looked at him much like this younger son and I said, dad, I'm so sorry I've ruined her name. And he said, I don't care about that. Somebody gonna say that to my face? Nobody's going to say anything about my son. And I was encouraged that I'm still part of the family. And what I've learned is a valuable lesson. Things happen. People are sinful. Your children will be as well. They'll make really horrible decisions. But as a good father, you have to communicate and you have to let them know while they're in your care, there is nothing you can ever do to remove yourself from my care and love. I am your father, and you will forever be my child. I may not agree with what you've done, but I love you nonetheless. As a good father, only good fathers make sure that their family knows that there's nothing you can do that will cast you out. There's nothing you can do to push you out. This is why I will not tell Bo to go and time out while the family's in the living room. I'm not telling you that timeout is bad. I'm just saying personally my application is I'm never going to discipline him in such a way that he is going to pay by not being a part of us. You go sit and time out. You're grounded in your room. You cannot fellowship with the family. You're going to sit there and you're going to pay for what you did. I will never do that. Not, again, not saying, you guys do that? Whatever. Me. I will not communicate that because in my experience, we'll never communicate to Bo. There's something you could do that will alienate you from this family. A good father makes sure... That never happens. A good father doesn't make his family pay. He provides all things, including restitution. And ultimately, we point to Jesus and how he paid it all. There's something in the story, I, I thought it was very profound, that one of the scholars pointed out, is that when the younger son came and said, give me my inheritance, and that was one-third and two-thirds, when he comes back, and he and, the, and and celebrates and gives him a ring, gives him a robe, gives him the fattened calf. The older brother gets mad and upset. And what happens is, and what is taking place is that what is left of the household of the father is to go all of it to the older son, all of it, that ring, that robe, that fattened calf is all the older son's inheritance. The younger son spent all he had. And when the father goes and says, all I have is yours in this story, he's 100% telling the truth. But he says this, but my son has been found, and he's back home. And so the older brother had to let go some of his inheritance in order to save or to celebrate the son who's been saved. This is what Jesus has done. We try to claim this world in our own lives with our own inheritance. God, give me these things. Give me these things so I can live my own life. And when we've squandered it all, we come to the heavenly father and he makes restitution through the older son. Jesus, who pays it all, and happily pays it all, so that we can be saved. So a good father doesn't make their sons pay for their sin, because Jesus paid it all. This is one of the greatest theological categories, penal substitution. The fact that I no longer, for my sins that I've committed, though I deserve justice, though I deserve penalty eternally... I don't have to pay that penalty because my older big brother, Jesus, took care of that payment for me. That is grace. That is love. That is free. A good father is not deterred by a rebellious child or a religious child, but both need the remedy... The gospel. This goes back to the first one. A good father makes sure that he is first and foremost concerned about their lostness and providing the remedy to the lostness, which is the gospel. The father comes to both of them, we see. The father runs to the one, and the father comes out of the party to the second. The father offers all of what he has to encourage the younger son that he is a part of the family, and the other one offers him to come in to celebrate. One responds, the other rejects, but it, they're both invited into the love feast. So a father isn't favoring his children, but he recognizes that a rebellious child or a religious child, the one that seems to have everything in order, the one who's in complete disorder, both of them don't deter a, fa- a good father. A good father sees What is happening, and supplies the remedy. A good father does all he can so that their so that his children delight in the heavenly Father above all things. A father does not point to himself, but he points to the heavenly Father and makes sure that that relationship with his children happens and is secure through the power of the Holy Spirit. A good father seeks to extinguish the fire. A sibling rivalry. Man, me and my sisters were the best at this, or me and my sister were the best at this. Bickering back and forth, bickering back and forth. And a lot of times we just respond like, knock it off. But we never spend time getting to the heart of the issue. A good father gets to the heart of the issue. Look at how he deals with the older son. When he goes out, he says, but he was lost. And has been found. You're angry. You've always been with me. Everything I have is yours. He is working on the older religious son, on his heart, to have compassion and love for his siblings. So a good father seems to extinguish or seeks to extinguish the fire of rivalry. A good father knows that his children must be born from the gospel and kept by the gospel. Again, this is, a good father does not do what he thinks is right, but he points them to the gospel by giving them the gospel and that they are kept in the gospel. He always reminds his family of the gospel to prevent them from relapsing into rebellious or religious tendencies that his children are prone to do. A good father greets failure with love and disappointment. He greets Failure with love and disappointment with reassurance. A good father, when your children fail, you have to respond with love. And when they're, when they're met with disappointment or when they've done something that's disappointing, you have to give them encouragement and reassurance. A good rule of thumb is when somebody, even if you need to take time out because you're angry, like sometimes I get, and you just need to be like, hey, I need a moment, You should first, before you leave the situation of somebody's failure or disappointment to you, reassure them of your love, your care, and your relationship. This is something that when Melissa and I get married, one of the things that we both talked about was like, when we reconcile, or before we reconcile, if it's going to be a while, we need to assure each other of our love for one another. Because there's nothing worse than sitting on your bed wondering if that person even loves you. And allowing Satan to have a foothold because you've messed up. I don't know, do they love me? Do they love me? You don't let Satan win. Before you leave or while you're taking your time, you communicate your love to them and reassure them. A good father knows how to show grace to the rebellious and to the religious without compromising what is most important, salvation. You have to Show grace. And this isn't just like being a pushover dad. Love and grace is never a pushover dad. Matter of fact, I would say the majority of men don't do that well. And so to learn love and grace and the way that it's truly displayed in the gospel is life-changing for people. They've actually probably never even seen this before the majority of the time. And But if you, being a good father, reflect the Heavenly Father and can show love and grace without compromising What the Bible says, you will be a good father. A good father leads in repentance. And I would say that this is probably, if you're going to pay attention to two, pay attention to the first one, pay attention to this last one. A good father leads in repentance. You don't have to be perfect. In fact, you won't be. You need to model repentance so that you and your children will experience the grace that saves and makes new. We all need to come to our senses. And who better to model that than the one who has the greatest influence in the family, the father. If you want your children to be repentant, if you want them to not go in certain ways, then you have to demonstrate to them and display for them the ways they ought to be if they've never seen what repentance looks like, then they won't know how to deal with their emotions or their own disappointment. It begins with you, Dad. Being a good father says, I'm actually not perfect, but the Heavenly Father is, and I'm pointing to Him, which means I repent. Buddy, I lost it. That was inappropriate. That wasn't a good dad. My dad doesn't treat me like that, and I shouldn't be treating him like that. He's authentic. He's genuine. He's real. He makes repentance a thing that is demonstrated and displayed to his children so that when it comes time for them to be brought to an end of, of themselves, because they will. We all fell and short fall short of the glory of, of God. We they know what repentance looks like. I can't help but this younger brother didn't come up with it. I mean, he doesn't seem like he's an intelligent guy off the bat. Had really had it really good, and he exchanged that for eating with pigs. So how did he come to his senses? Well, one, probably through the Holy Spirit, but I bet his good father demonstrated it to him. I don't know if that happened, but I think a lot of us, a lot of good can happen in our families if the father demonstrates that he doesn't have it all together, that he is in need of repentance too and loving kindness from the father the heavenly father so here's the takeaway three things in closing it's not about rebellion it's not about religion it's about relationship that's what the story teaches there's two sons rebellious and religious one is not better than the other they're different and they need the same remedy the gospel but that gospel is about a relationship with the father. That's what it is. Both of them have alienated themselves from the father. One comes to his senses and wants to be a son. The other one is rebuking his dad because he's done everything perfect and everything he's expected to do, which tells us that it's not about what you do, It's not about your works in the family it's about our relationship and if that's if it's about relationship then our families have to be about primarily the relationship with each other it go and when it is it goes from i have to do it to i get to do these things i love my dad so i yeah i i love my dad and the fact he he provides for this house and we're going to take care of it we're going to keep it clean along with him that's how Relationships influence. A father's relationship can influence his family and take them from I have to to I get to and celebration. Being a prodigal father, be a prodigal father who lives loosely with love and grace to draw his children to repentance and to salvation. Be a prodigal father as much as your children might be wayward and go and live loosely, be even more loose with your love and grace and draw them to repentance and lead them more loosely and abundantly to the Heavenly Father. Turn their hearts towards God by showing and displaying who God is through your character and your fatherhood. Be a prodigal father. And lastly, being a father in this culture and the climate is very hard. That only being a good father, like our heavenly father, will reclaim fatherhood and demonstrate to the world that fathers are loving, good, and great, and highly needed. We're going to sing a song in response and My response times aren't just like, hey, we've got to go through some motions. It's I want genuine response. I hope that you've been challenged today as fathers. And when you're not removed from this situation, you should be encouraging the men to be good fathers. Even if you don't have children, you can still be a father to the fatherless. You can demonstrate these things to the children that don't have a father. I pray right now, that my children, that I do not have the privilege in this moment, in this time, to father right now, that the Lord has somehow, talk about having to wait for the Lord's intervention and just trust, I pray that the influences that are involved in my children's life and the things that I have done and displayed to them when I was with them is carrying them along right now and forming in them a desire to pursue Jesus. So even if you aren't a father, you can be a father to the fatherless. We're called to do so. But those who are a father, it's never too late to be a good father if you feel like you haven't been. Or maybe you feel like you are a good father, then be a great father like the Heavenly Father. There's much we have to think about, men. There's much that we have to tend to. There's much that we have to respond to and do Because I believe strong, godly families are our aim, are our mission, and we have to be good fathers.